On today's episode of the Give First podcast, Brad Feld and I talk about leadership through crisis. We know you've probably heard plenty about the SVB and Signature Bank issues. This was recorded on the Tuesday after all of those issues happened over the weekend. And really, we thought we just wanted to share it with you. This was our discussion with the Techstars community, and we thought there was some good stuff in here that perhaps you'd want to hear on the podcast as well. Hi, everyone. This is David Cohen, and I'm here with my amazing co-host, Brad Feld. Hey, Brad. And this is the Give First podcast. And in the startup world, Give First means simply trying to help anyone, especially entrepreneurs, without any expectation of getting anything back. So we'll be talking to mentors and founders about what Give First looks like in action and how it makes great entrepreneurship possible. We polled everyone, and they said consistently that their favorite part of the show was the legal mumbo-jumbo. So here it is. The following discussion is an expression of personal opinion and does not represent the opinion of Techstars or any company we discuss. Our conversations for informational purposes only, including any mention of securities or funds. This is not legal business investment or tax advice and is not intended for use by any investor. Certain of Techstars funds own or may own in the future securities in some of the companies discussed in this podcast. Got it? We're here with Techstars co-founders, Brad Feld and David Cohen. My name is Molly and I'm your host today. I'm your Oprah Winfrey. Maybe I'm your Phil Donahue. That aged me like majorly. So I think what we should talk right away, just kick things off. David, if you want to go first, just give us kind of a one minute reflection on the past few days. What stood out? What did you see? And is this going to be one of those moments where we all look back and say, I certainly remember where, where I was when. And then, Brad, I'll, I'll ask you to do the same. Yeah, and not rehashing. I think people know what, what's gone on with, with the banking stuff. But as I sit here today, there's a lot of pride around a lot of the things I'm involved with where I saw a lot of people really rally together and really support each other. And that was really true across the Techstars network. That's true on several boards, Techstars and many others that I'm on. People really kind of came together to support each other and, and sort of deal in crisis mode. As I sit here today, I have three things going on. I'm, I'm, I'm tired. You know, the weekend didn't really happen. I'm really based on so far what the outcomes are and that money seems to be moving and startups are going to survive and funds are going to survive. But I'm, but I'm also pretty sad. I think the, we all lost a, a real partner for many decades in the startup community that made things easier for startups and, and SVB and. Who knows what the remnants of that will do, but a, a lot of good people are going to be leaving the bank or have left the bank. A lot of venture debt that had flowed through them and a lot of relationship that had flowed through them is, is going to be missing from the community. So I have those mixed feelings. Yeah, I'll add, but first by saying everything that David just said, I feel as well. So I won't repeat it. I'll try to add a few more things. I, I would say that I am amazed, both positive and negative by the way many people responded. There was not much in the middle for me. There are some, you know, some people I didn't notice how they responded, but responses were either really strong positive or really strong negative for my frame of reference across different organizations. Less, and I really, in that context, it's really VCs that I'm talking about, not founders and CEOs. Second, I am really appreciative of everybody in my world who communicated clearly versus performantly. There was a lot of performant communication on 
Thursday and Friday, there was a lot of self-congratulatory stuff among VCs over the weekend. And I saw a lot of sort of very different kinds of messages. And the people who are communicating substantively, clearly, factually, and then focusing on what the immediate problem was, earn points in my book. And once we got to Saturday, the CEOs who focused on the immediate problem, which was payroll, as we realized it, because payroll needed to happen for almost every company needed to be submitted Monday or Tuesday. I think the CEOs, that the leaders that focused on the short-term problem, okay, I got a long-term problem, but there's so much uncertainty here. I don't know how to deal with it. I know what my immediate short-term problem is. I need to go solve my immediate short-term problem this weekend. And I have huge amounts of anxiety about the short, medium term beyond that. Like the CEOs that focused on that and the venture firms that work with their CEOs around that, very powerful in comparison to lots of folks who kept sending emails saying, hey, what do you know? Hey, what do you know? Hey, what do you know? Which is actually just distracting. So those, again, proud of the people who really showed up and functioned effectively. And David, did you see that too? I mean, you said amazed, we were sad, we were communicating clearly. Did you see that generally, again, in in your community? The vast majority, I think that I saw, and again, I'm I'm in a bunch of, I'm an investor in a bunch of funds also. And then of course, the companies around the Techstars network, they were communicating well and clearly for the most part. There were a few, I don't know, that were being opportunistic around it, not necessarily taking a light tone, but sort of using it as a way, oh, you know, let's, let's get customers moving or let's take advantage of this in some way, which didn't feel awesome to me. But by and large, I think that the vast majority that I saw were communicating well and focused on as Brad said, mostly it was payroll and immediate cash flow. From a functional perspective, once we kind of got to Saturday, all the attention should have shifted and for many companies did shift on securing payroll for the following week because there was nothing on Saturday and Sunday that anybody could do until the government did whatever it was going to do. And the people that realized that and then put all their energy into how do I make sure that my employees get paid? Like that was really impressive. And on that note, I think communication was brought up earlier. How much should people be sharing with their team? You know, how do you effectively keep people in the loop with that just sort of inciting panic among your staff? What would you recommend for something like that? We have about 70 active portfolio companies, a little bit more, but the in, in Foundry, we had 70. And of that, 45 of them banked with SVB. And so all weekend long, my partners and I focused on, we, you know, focused on our companies, the ones that we were on the boards of, and we split it up and we communicated across all of it. Of the 15 companies that I was responsible for, I think nine of them were banked with SVB. Of those nine, I think all of them communicated everything to their employees, not blow by blow, but you know, when the FDIC took over SVB, we back with SVB. It's unclear what's happening. You know, we're working really hard on this. Next message on Saturday, we're focusing on making sure that everybody gets payroll next week, working really hard on that. And when people figured out how to secure payroll, even if the money was frozen on Saturday, or, you know, on, on Monday, and all all the companies, I think in our portfolio that needed to secure payroll did in one way or another, there were definitely some I will describe them as heroic actions, things that were way outside the norm. Um, by Sunday, a note went out to all employees again. Hey, we still have a lot of uncertainty. We'll keep communicating. Da, 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 da. And a lot of cases, they, you know, the smaller teams, they just get everybody on the phone or do it all hands. But it was just very open 
the CEOs didn't have to show up unrattled. Like there was definitely like, I'm feeling a lot of stress. I'm confused. I don't have all the information. There was plenty of that in those kinds of communications versus like, everything's fine. Don't worry. The whole world is totally cool. Ignore. Like it wasn't that kind of communication. David, do you want to add to that? And then my other question is sort of how do you, you know, balance that communication with taking action and listening? You've got a lot of people coming at you with advice and questions and, and how do you balance all of that? Yeah, I mean, I think on the communication one, I think that your style as a company is going to be your style, but I think it's most effective when, as Brad said, you're pretty transparent and real about it. And, you know, people just want to know three things. They want to know you're on it. They want to know how it affects them. And they want to know if they can help in some way, right? I mean, that's sort of what I saw in every situation. What they don't want is like, yeah, yeah, don't worry, right? So, you know, in the case of Techstars, right, we were communicating with employees, limited partners, our own investor and portfolio companies pretty much daily and, and saying, hey, here's how it might affect you. Because that's really ultimately what people want to know. And we had the same payroll challenge a lot of companies did, but we just moved quickly through relationships that we had to, to secure short-term lines of credit, whether or not we need them, right? That wasn't going to be a problem for employees. And we were able to tell them that pretty quickly. So just think about the constituent, how it affects them is what they really want to understand. And they'll remember in that moment, if you're transparent with them and it might feel like a crisis for a day or two, but for most companies, that's how long it felt. It wasn't that long. Let's go on to fundraising. There's lots of questions that came in about fundraising and, and I'm sure that's kind of on the top of everybody's mind. So Brad, how does this affect Series A markets over the next few weeks as you peer into your crystal ball? I don't have a crystal ball. Mine broke in the internet bubble. So 20-something years ago, my crystal ball exploded. That said, there's no question that this was a key moment in what has been a steady, pick your word, right? Deflation of the most current, you know, post-COVID bubble change to the venture landscape. Some people want to refer to it a certain way. It's been clear that since Thanksgiving 2021, which was really the peak of this cycle, there's been a pretty steady decline or tightening or more challenging environment. Again, whatever language you want to use. I think this was another key point of dislocation for that. I don't think it's going to resolve and be done Wednesday. I think that it's another stressor on what is already a very stressful sort of ecosystem around funding. That said, there will be financings done. There's plenty of investors who have Series A capital. They're going to be more careful. They're going to invest slower because they're going to make their funds last longer than they have been. And the primary driver of much of this is that LPs are not enthusiastic about putting money into venture right now. And so they're also tightening sort of the supply on that end of the spectrum. And investors of all stages are paying attention to how much of their capital they want for their existing companies. Because for companies that they have, especially in Series A or Series B stages that are working, they are going to be protective of their own companies before making new investments. So all of that just purports additional slowdown. I don't think that if I gave the very specific advice as to what to do about it, you should assume it will take you longer to fundraise. I think we're back in a mode where, you know, you don't raise money in 30 days, you raise money in, you know, three to six months. You're going to have to do a lot more meetings at the Series A. And it's important to understand what your existing investors have in terms of capacity for you 
going into the fundraise if you need more time or for some reason you're unable to attract an investor. And David, how do you think this affects a pre-seed startups, people who are preparing for demo day, people who are really in the weeds and building their company? Yeah. I mean, one of the things we always try to to talk to early stage companies about is is to try to focus on what they can control. And this is this is to some extent not one of them. There are these dynamics, as Brad says, this deterioration and the market dynamics in general. But, you know, I mean, when this happened, I think Techstars had a hundred or so investments in flight. Those things are delayed, right, from the banking situation, but they're happening. It's not that we're pulling back on them. It's just trying to move money around is hard, right? So those that are in process and flight, what you can control is explaining your business clearly, using the network to get in front of the right investors and telling your story the right way. What you can't control is that general market dynamic where, you know, maybe there's a little less money flying around and or things are slower than they were last week, which were slower than they were last year, right? So focus on what you can control and money is still out there. People are still going to be doing deals. That's true of us. It may happen a little more slowly and just recognize that. So I liked what you said about using your network. And there's a question that came in to the Q&A about the appetite for warm or cold emails for investors. Should we be reaching out for help? Should everybody just kind of take a pause and look back? Or is this the time to like, you know, start dialing for dollars again? I don't think you should change your behavior from what you were planning on doing before. Fundraising is non-deterministic. You don't have like, here's the 15 steps and then money shows up. It's, you know, a lot of different things. I think if people know me, they know that I'm a, I'm a huge believer in randomness and just allowing yourself to engage with lots of different people to see what comes of it. Fundraising is a sales process execute the sales process and know where in the sales process you have better leads. If you're randomly emailing a VC that's, you know, a name brand VC at a very large fund and you're trying to raise a series A from them, that's a very low probability event in any scenario. If you're being introduced by an existing investor who has a 20-year relationship with another VC that has followed on to them stuff that they had done in seed or even series A, you know, 10 times over the last 20 years, that's a much higher qualified thing. But you have to do it all. You have to go after it. It's just harder and requires much more, just just many more efforts. I wouldn't pause what you need to do for your business. Line of supply of money, if you're a startup that's burning money, is key. If you don't have your supply lined up, make sure you always have enough money to keep operating your business, right? Rule number one, don't run out of money. If you're not generating cash flow, positive cash flow, you got to figure out different places to get money. And on the topic of, of money, David, what is Techstars doing to support startups right now that have frozen lines of credit with SVB? So you mentioned the portfolio services at techstars.com email address, of course, your MD. And then, of course, Techstars Universe, the Discord server is very lit up. There's a whole topic of SVB. There's 2,000 founders in there talking about this. If you're an alum or in a program and you're not in Techstars Universe, that's a great resource from the community. And I see a lot of documents there, a lot of how-tos and FAQs that many organizations are creating. But fundamentally, we do have contacts that are still at the entity around SVB today. Same with Signature. So... You know, want to put you in touch with those people if you have something that's gummed up. The general intel that, that I have, and Brad 
you know, maybe you have different or newer is things like lines of credit, supposedly still active, supposedly still usable in most cases. And so a lot of that is fear that they're not going to be. That may change. It looks like there may be some auction or pieces, parts deal happening with, with these bank or with SVB specifically. But as far as we know, these things are still active and some companies have covenants around them where they're not supposed to move money elsewhere. I know SVB has been waiving a lot of those covenants in the extraordinary situation that we're in. But generally, it's case-by-case case triage, and we're happy to help with your specific situation. The community is there to help on Techstars Universe as well. There's a, a current Zoom going on right now with the new CEO of SVB at the same time. So uh, <laughs> tricky timing on that. Brad, did you want to jump in? Now it's 10 minutes to go. So uh, <laughs> got a couple of people from Foundry on it, and I presume some folks from Techstars are on it. So hopefully notes will go out. But prior to whatever the new CEO is saying, the 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 information and activity from this morning is money is flowing, credit cards are turned back on. There's obviously still, they're just trying to deal with this massive scale of everything that's happening. So there's probably going to be some glitches. We have recommended to all of our portfolio companies that had lines that were undrawn. In other words, they drawn some or none, but they could draw more to go ahead and draw down the full line because it's unclear what will happen to those lines if the bank gets sold. We've also encouraged people not to move their money out of SVB if they have debt agreements in place other than short-term operational financing. Don't break the covenants. Like, Make sure that whatever your covenants are, you get a formal waiver before you do anything that would cause a covenant break. And the relationship manager you have at SVB should be able to do that for you now because they are at work doing things. The risk of doing something that would break a covenant if you have a loan outstanding is the if somebody buys SVB tomorrow and decides they want to shrink the loan book, or whatever reason, anybody who's in breach of a covenant could be part of what they go after first. So, you know, it's the irony of this moment is SVB is probably the safest place in the United States to keep your money. So, you know, the fear that people had on Friday is completely misplaced if you carry it today relative to where your cash is. That's separate from like, how do I feel about my bank? And is my bank going to support my company going forward? And Da, 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 da. Like, again, these are all settled down, but just in the immediate short term, know that there's probably a lot more second order effects as SVB, the new SVB operationalizes itself. David, you cracked a smile at that uh, ironic comment. Would you want to weigh in on there? No, I think it's exactly right. But uh, Brad, maybe say more about why it's the safest place. I mean, it's to us, we get, I mean, it's, you know, basically the government has stepped in and is backing it. So unless the whole government fails, it's pretty safe, safer than most banks. I'll go, go further than that. Didn't that the government stepped in and backstopped it? The government now owns it. Yep. So this will be very noisy and complicated over the next couple of weeks. But SVB, the organization, the parent company is SVB Financial. It has four subsidiaries. One of those subsidiaries is Silicon Valley Bank. That is now owned by the U.S. government. The other subsidiary, actually two of them, the other one is SVB Private Bank, also owned by the U.S. government. The other two subsidiaries, SVB Capital and SVB Investment Banking, as well as a bunch of things on SVB's balance sheet, SVB Financial's balance sheet are not owned by the federal government. So they'll sell that stuff off. In the meantime, the federal government owns SVB, Silicon Valley Bank and the private bank and has guaranteed 100% of all deposits and 100% of any money that flows into the bank. So U.S. government's now guaranteeing it rather than 
the FDIC $250,000 limit. That will be part of any sale process if they do sell that Silicon Valley bank. But that's unknown. They may not sell it. They may keep it and continue to run it and reconstitute it at some point as a separate business that's not owned by the government. But that's why it's safe right now, sort of to the extreme. So who's going to step in then as, you know, SVB was the startup funding bank. And so, you know, JP Morgan's not going to lend to those folks. So what happens to all of these infant companies who need a bank? I think it's going to be really complex to see how it plays out. And you have to separate it into a couple of things. There are a bunch of other banks that are venture lenders that compete with SVB. There are banks like Bridge Bank, First Republic, well, Signature was in that category now. You know, they're in the same place that SVB is at and on and on. So you've got a bunch of a bunch of banks like that, that, you know, a lot of ex-SVB people. Another one would be PacWest, which bought a bank called Square One. So there's still that in the ecosystem. But that part of the ecosystem is also very turbulent right now because people are moving huge amounts of accounts across. And so like understanding what people are going to do in the next week is is very challenging. Then the larger banks, and you mentioned JP Morgan. JP Morgan has built a very significant venture lending organization that's led by some ex SVB people. And they've scaled that up very, very quickly, but they're focused on larger customers, larger companies, I should say. You know, so the seed in Series A is not their sweet spot. They're much more focused on banking Series B and further, although they do plenty of Series A type banking. They have a huge inflow of activity right now, so it'll be hard to see how that shakes out long-term in terms of their strategy. But I think you could expect that at least at the Series A and greater level, they'll be very active. And then what, what's fascinating is all the other banks, including very large ones like Wells Fargo, big medium-sized ones like KeyBank and, and a number of others, are looking hard at extending or expanding their business from where they're playing to move down into SVB. And some of them are already saying very quickly, no, we're not going to be able to play in that. So we heard, for example, from Wells Fargo in talking to tech, technology, their technology leadership on the commercial banking side. They're like, yeah, we're not, we're not going to bank early stage companies. It's just not our thing. So I think pretty quickly there will be a resettling of what these players are. And it's going to take some time. I mean, it's it's not going to be something that by March 31st, there's clarity on. And then SVB's announcement today, they're extending new loans. I don't really know uh, how real that is and how well they'll be able to execute on that. And I think time will tell, but I'm optimistic that what they're saying, which is that they're back in business, will be true. I do know that all of the people at SVB or at Silicon Valley Bank operationally are still there. So the government did not fire everybody. What the government did was they put a new CEO in place. They took control of the bank. They guaranteed or they essentially employed over the weekend all of the Silicon Valley bank employees. And they offered them a 45-day deal with a 1.5x retention. So essentially, if you're a Silicon Valley bank employee, you're now getting 1.5x your salary you got last week for the next 45 days to stay versus flee. So they're really trying to set it up to say, look, Let's stabilize this thing. Let's buy ourselves some time so that that we can sort things out versus in a crisis, which from my frame of reference was what I had hoped the government would do. Like if you say, hey, Brad, are you happy with what the government did? The answer was, I think they did probably what was the best possible thing given the amount of time and given the downstream risk and given how fast things were moving. 
David, would you agree with that the way that the government stepped in, Janet Yellen, certainly in the spotlight over the past few days, was that a good move? Yeah, I think it was. I mean, to me, this is like fun, fundamentally different from a lot of the historical bank crashes and that, you know, SBB had a solid book and a solid business and a bunch of things went wrong and then the bank run happened. And I think what was done is is very responsible and right. It turns into political issues. And people take sides. My impression is that the right thing was done and it was done very quickly. So I'm, I'm pretty happy with how it was handled. It's a really useful, very quick way to describe, I think, it's out of the politics. So for anybody that doesn't completely understand what happens or is watching too much, I don't care which side of the aisle you're on, too much mainstream media as everybody gets hyperbolic. There, there were two constituencies here. Constituencies were the people who owned the bank and the people who had their money in the bank. The people who owned the bank had their value wiped out. That value is gone. The people who had money in the bank, it's still their money. So that was what happened. And there's a lot of conflating of those things. But fundamentally, the phrase you're going to hear too many times, probably there's a couple of them, but one of them is moral hazard. From my frame of reference, totally irrelevant to this kind of conversation, because what you've got is a very heavy concentration of SVB's customers are the innovation economy, or startups, or companies, or investors. And everybody thought their money at SVB was safe. And so it is. But the value, all the shareholders, whether you own public company stock, or whether you had stock options, or whether you were bondholders of the bank, certainly all the stock is wiped out. And probably the bondholders will get something back, you know, in what goes on. But that's different than what the government did in the financial crisis, which is they essentially allowed the banks that didn't fail, which was all, basically all of them, to continue to stay in business and have their equity values built back up over time. So, so yeah, the word bailout getting thrown around, which is not the right word. So need to be careful with that. David, question about bonuses that are included in employee agreements, and this is a little specific, but when should we pause and notify employees about bonuses or perhaps no bonuses? That's right. Totally get the context of that. So this is a portfolio company that has employees that have bonus plans and they're not sure if they can pay them. Correct. That's what it sounds like. Yeah. It's a huge, it depends, right? Because often bonus plans are tied to company performance. If company performance is strong, you're going to pay it. If it's not, you're not. And that's expected, but it depends on the very specific situation. I mean, I think of it the same way I would think of payroll, that that money is either available or you have a cash flow problem, it's not available and you're working to solve that problem. I think the key is communicating, you know, we want to pay it, we plan to pay it. If that's the case, we are delayed in paying it because of this or the company's not performing. So therefore we're not paying it. But I think transparency around it is good. It depends on the specific situation, but it, to me is no different than, you know, salaries you would be paying according to the way you've always done it. So let's take a step into, okay, money market accounts at SVB. Interest rates were at 25 to 4.3. From your perspective, should startups use this or not? And again, this is a little specific, but off the cuff, what are your thoughts? Let me separate this into two things. One is, where should you keep your money right now at SVB to make sure that it's 100% secure? 
And the other is, where should you keep your money at any other bank? Because probably a lot of people bank at other banks to make sure that your depository money is secure. And this is something that the vast majority of the venture landscape missed on. And it's a lesson, unfortunately, that we have to learn every 20 years. And this happened in the internet bubble as well, different dynamic. Rule number one of a startup is you are not chasing yield on the money in the bank. You are focused on capital preservation. So if you have money in the bank, if you have a million dollars in the bank, the key thing for you is not to get an extra $20,000 a year of interest. It's to not lose any of the million dollars in the bank because of some kind of financial dynamic with the bank. At SVB right now, it doesn't matter. 100% of your deposits are insured. You can keep your money anywhere you want at SVB now. It's all guaranteed. That is not true at any other bank other than presumably Signature. I haven't focused enough on Signature because we have very few companies that bank with Signature. The thing you will hear over and over again is that you have an FDIC insurance limit. Your deposits are insured $250,000 and anything above that are not insured. Again, SVB 100% currently is guaranteed equivalent of insured. Interestingly, SVB has a series of accounts. One is called an ICS account that on a daily basis, you can essentially keep all, well, you can keep all your money in the ICS account. And there's multiple different flavors of this at different banks, but it's the equivalent. And you earn a little bit less interest in that account, but the SVB version of the ICS account, it's insured cash sweep is, is what ICS stands for is up to $125 million. So, and the way they do that is a whole banking system that happened with the regulatory environment where your money gets sent into this system and distributed across all kinds of banks. So small amounts are in a whole bunch of banks, but it's all in the background to you. And whenever you need the money, you call down. Again, SVB, you don't have to do this now because all their money is guaranteed, but other banks, their equivalent of that is important. The alternative is if you have more than $250,000, you can keep it in non-depository instruments. And those include money market funds and other types of secure holdings that are not considered deposits. The trick there is, and a lot of companies got confused about it, and SVB did themselves no favors because of the way they marketed this. They marketed to a lot of companies that, hey, you can get better yield or better interest from us if you keep it in our money market account. And their money market account wasn't really a money market account. It was still considered a depository account. So there are a lot of people that thought they had money in this kind of other thing, but it wasn't. So just getting a little smarter about that with your bank and asking the question and working with investors and board members, which by the way, the part of this problem was I think investors and board members were not tuned into this, including me, at the level that we should have been, because none of us were really contemplating that this dynamic could have played out. And that will be different going forward. I think there will be a lot more focus on companies, again, on cash management and doing it in a responsible way, not chasing an incremental one or two percentage point of return on an annual basis. So personally, my trade, if every board I'm involved in, it's like, all you care about is capital preservation. By the way, for a long time, we're getting 0% or 0.5% interest rates on money. Like, why are we caring right now to get 2% instead of 4%? Doesn't matter. There's all kinds of macroeconomic arguments about it, but your startup and your goals not to lose that money because you need that money to build your business. 
David, there's a question as we look back and reflect and learn. Those of us who have been in journalism, we love a good crisis. So, you know, what can we do? Do we go back? Do we have a postmortem? Do we have a lessons learned with our team? Do you recommend people go back and talk to their team about what worked, what didn't? What should we do better? Let's write all this down. So the next time we have a crisis, we can pull out our playbook. Oh, if only there were a playbook. I think you're getting through it, this thing one, and dealing with it because that's what a crisis is. And plenty of companies are still doing that. And then, yeah, I think it's good to look at not necessarily just specifically like, okay, are we okay if there's ever a bank problem? But how did we manage through this crisis? What worked well for us in general, right? Updating, you know, investors daily, updating the team daily, having a stand-up. What were the processes that allowed us to communicate well around this? Who did we leverage on our board or in our network? And who could we have maybe leveraged better or differently? Thinking about, you know, because the next crisis will just be something different, most likely, right? And so it, it's just looking at how your team handled it and the things that worked and the things that didn't work around that crisis. And again, sort of identifying those and and maybe starting a playbook, maybe someone start that business crisis playbook. Yeah. Well, for example, who, you know, let's say that the next one involves some kind of crazy PR thing. Do you know who your PR person is you're going to call to help you manage that? Do you, or do you have to figure that out in real time? Right. So just collecting those types of resources in one place that are likely to be part of a crisis. Again, not just banking, because this one is banking, but across everything you do. Will future Techstars class funding be affected? Smaller classes are less funding or longer to know if we get accepted? Will it affect sort of the structure of how Techstars works in terms of our accelerators and our programs? For Getting accepted into an accelerator at Techstars or getting funded through it in general, I would say, no, it should not be affected. There is a momentary challenge probably this week, right, of things flowing in general. That's for follow-on funding or any other activity that we're doing that should be momentary, like that's well in control. For companies graduating accelerator looking to raise capital, I think as Brad talked about earlier, right, this is part of the general deterioration of uh, the market and, and a big milestone in that. But there, there are other things that have happened to cause funding to slow down, be less available. That's consequently, in many cases, driving down valuations or amounts of capital invested. So this is another thing moving us in that direction. But I don't think it's a full stop. I think there are funds out there with capital that want to invest it. It's just that there's certainly less than there was before. And I think that capital will move more slowly. Will it move slower for underrepresented founders, do you feel? Gosh, I mean, that does seem to be the pattern. I don't know. And I don't have my, my crystal ball is also broken, but I hope not. I think there's been a lot of progress in that area and we'll see what happens. I don't, I don't know for sure, but I hope not. I'd add just a historical reference for people that were not founders during either the global financial crisis in 2007, 2009, in the internet bubble, which was really sort of the peak was, you know, the, the 2000 to 2002 cycle where probably 2002, 2003 was the trough of it. Funding didn't stop, right? So it wasn't that it just stopped. It was that everything went from super easy to super hard. And if you think of it as a spectrum, where stuff happens, but on the spectrum, at one end of the spectrum, this end is very, very easy, and this end is very, very hard. And, you know, the normal thing is somewhere in here, right? Like maybe middle of the spectrum, plus or minus a little bit. 
we were in a cycle at the end of 2020 and into most of 2021 where it was here. Like it was really easy. And now we're back at the cycle where it's here really hard. And it'll stay here for a while and then it'll start to drift back to that equilibrium place in the middle as everything sort of works its way through the system. And almost every historical dynamic around capital flows, as long as you believe that the economic environment that you're in is expanding, is growing, um, that, you know, we're in the United States, let's, I know Techstars is international, but let's use the U.S., that you believe that U.S. GDP is actually increasing year over year over a long period of time and that we're continuing to generate more and more economic opportunity as a country, the equilibrium will swing back. But we're pegged. We're pretty pegged on hard. Not it's gone. It's just hard. Yeah, David, I see you sort of looking at that that question we're seeing more layoffs this situation with the bank <clears throat> is is it the wrong time to start a startup to join an accelerator or is it the right time or is this really is the right time i'm sure everyone knows what i'm gonna say it's a great time it's a beautiful day to start a startup. <laughs> when things are harder there's a flight to quality and we all like to think the thing we're doing is the highest quality thing and the biggest opportunity and that means competitors have a harder time raising money. You have an easier time hiring talent because they're flowing from places, things that aren't working. During the pandemic, I wrote this open letter to startups everywhere in a time of crisis saying, you know, hey, now's the time. Let's go. If you're still alive on the other end of this, you're going to be much better place and farther down the road than someone that starts a company in two or three years. I see the comment in here about YC cutting 20% of its staff, that's 100% related to their later stage funds. You know, they're cutting back on that, but they're, I don't think they're cutting back on investing in the early stage. In fact, they're trying to focus more on it. We don't expect decreases like that. I think it's a great time to start a company. And I think accelerators are still a great option, as you would expect me to say. My add to that is two things. One, remember that Techstars was started in 2006 and seven. I mean, in 2006, we were still on the, still coming out of the internet bubble collapse. It wasn't, you know, Web 2 was starting to be talked about, but it was still a very difficult time and almost impossible for seed funding. There were almost no seed funds at the time. And 2007 and 8, we ran our first program in 2007, second in 2008. That was a global financial crisis. So just, you know, whenever somebody asks me that question, I immediately flash back to like, well, yeah, we were one of those. There's an endless cliche that I've heard since I started my first company in 1987, which is the best companies are built or created in the worst economic environments. It's a cliche. It's not a categorically or statistically correct thing, but there's like a long list of companies that were started at very, very, very bad economic moments. Apple is one of them. Genentech and biotech is one of them. Intel is one of them. I mean, they get rolled out like that. And the point is that the moment that you start is completely decoupled from what's going on in the macro. And sure, the macro impacts your company, but as a startup, you have so many more ways to take advantage of both the negative and the positive versus a larger company or more established company that has much harder time maneuvering around those kinds of situations. You talked about the sales book, and there's a couple questions about should we have more runway, excess liquidity? Should we, you know, should we change that in light of all of this, or is it still applicable? Don't run out of money. <laughs> yeah. I, and to me, it's the same sort of, it's a spectrum thing, right? We've been talking to companies about 
you know, how much runway should I have? More. More is good. Be careful with your spending. It's not growth at all costs. That's not what the market is like right now. Of course, it depends on this, the exact company and dynamics, but, you know, it, on that spectrum, right, it just got better to have more time and more runway, but it's not a total shift in the market. It's the direction we've been heading. Should you have 18 to 24? Sure, if you can. I mean, reality may impose and you only have, uh, but if you can have 36, I'm all for it. And so let's go back, Brad, just real quick. What was the moment in, over the past few days that you were like, oh, this is, this is happening? Well, I'll tell a story quickly because it shows sort of how fast it moved. I had promised some people, hopefully people know my wife, Amy Bachelor, is way more important to me than anything else I do. And we've been trying to buy a couple of couches for about a month. And the key thing to buying a couch is I need to go sit in it because the only couches that we've ever failed at were ones that she bought where I hadn't actually tried in advance. So uh, three weeks ago, we were going to go couch shopping in Denver and she hurt herself. And so hurt her back and it's like, okay, let's not do that. And then two weeks ago, we were supposed to go couch shopping and I had a cold and I had a cold again a week ago. It lasted for a while. And I'm just like, I just don't feel like doing this. So we had scheduled Friday morning to go to Denver and go to three stores and me to sit in about 50 couches and say, yes, no, yes, no. And then we could finish. Thursday, this was all playing out. And Amy said to me, do you want to cancel tomorrow? And I said, nah, you know, like, I think the worst case is that we limp through tomorrow with just a whole bunch of insanity and the government takes over at the end of the day. And then we'll have a weekend and who the fuck knows what's going to happen. It'll be the whole weekend. So let's just go couch shopping. And you know, I was on my phone and helping people continually, right, at that point. But I'm like, you know, it's we're, it's not going to it's not going to climax till the end of the day. And we're driving down 36 uh, and I get an alert and it's like 930 or whatever. I get an alert that the FDIC has just shut down SVB. <laughs> and I turned to her and I said, well, totally wrong on that one. And uh, that was the moment. Like, it's like, oh. Okay, because, you know, there was still some sense for companies that, I mean, most of the companies in our portfolio that banked at SVB that didn't have debt were trying to move their money out, that did have debt were trying to, like, figure out how to get a payroll or two out or prefund their payroll. Like, you know, people were freaked out, but that was, like, what was focused. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, nothing's going to work now until Monday, so how the fuck are we going to do payroll? And that then became the actionable thing. Um, so I you're still, gonna name your? I was, did you get the couch? What happened with the couch? I, we still did. No, I mean I was on my cell phone and talking to people and texting and emailing while I sat on couches. I didn't have to really pay much attention. But for that, so that couch that is now involved. infamous in your house. I feel like it needs a little plaque like next to a I museum. Where I was when we bought that couch. This couch was was it? And David, I think you were you were perhaps at a sporting event and your phone just kept buzzing. Oh, he's oh yeah, you were at uh, Indian Wells. I'm not right? wearing this this bank other bank T-shirt intentionally. Someone already pointed out to me it's the tennis tournament, and this is actually from like several years ago. But yeah, I was on a six-hour flight from New York to San Francisco a Thursday, and so it was all you know airborne text. Oh my God, what's going on? And then Friday, I tried to go to the to the tournament and ended up just you know on the phone from the tennis tournament all day. So. I'm sure the players. Saturday, as Brad said, I got to watch tennis Saturday because nothing was, you couldn't do anything by Saturday. One other, one other thing, which is how emotional response. I've been through a bunch of these, right? I'm now, you know, I'm now in the older guy in the room or older person in the room category. The first one I experienced was 1984 when I was in college, uh, which was the SNL crisis, savings and loan crisis. I grew up in Dallas, Texas, and my father is a doctor who had a whole bunch of real estate that was, you know, funded by banks. 
And he had a very, very challenging 12 months because he had money, but none of his partners did because they were all real estate and banking people. And, you know, just sort of fighting through that and fearing his whole net worth would be destroyed and that sort of stuff. So I was close to him. I always have been close to him, but I remember that period of time. It was very formative, bunch of others. And for me, uh, I, I monitor my own emotional situation when these things are unfolding and I try to stay very calm. I try to sort of recognize how much anxiety I'm feeling at any given time. And I especially, you know, like I do things just before I go to bed to try to cool off. I take a shower. I don't like check my email for 30 minutes before I go to bed. Like I kind of stop long enough to let it calm down so I can just reflect on where I'm at. And I would say Wednesday night, I was utterly perplexed by what SVB was doing, saying, and what was being said. Like I didn't quite get it. I was having a hard time processing it Wednesday night, but I didn't feel particularly anxious. Like I just was like, eh, I don't get this. Thursday night, I was incredibly anxious. Like when I laid down in bed Thursday night and, you know, Amy can feel it vibrating off of me and I calm down, but I'm like, yeah, this is not, this is not a good thing. This has got to be in that category of really bad. I just don't know what it's going to, how it's going to resolve. And, you know, get a good night's sleep to the extent that I could. And then Friday night, I went to bed. I would say my anxiety level was lower because I was now in a mode where I was really focused on problem solving across the company because the crisis was in full blow. Like it was no longer a crisis that might happen. It was a real fucking crisis. And so for me, when I get into that mode, it comes down because then I just shift into, okay, how do I solve the problem? How do I get through it mode? And, you know, by, I would say Sunday afternoon, as we were waiting for the government to do their thing, not knowing, because if they did a certain thing, it was going to be relatively chaotic, but relatively manageable. And if they did another thing, it was going to be a complete shit show. And when they did what they did, and it was in the chaos, but manageable category, it was a real emotional sigh of relief from what is a lot of pent up anxiety. So again, personal way of sort of navigating through it or feeling it in the moment. And for somebody that just went through something like this for the first time, I would encourage you to reflect on how you processed it. It's, I know it's touchy feely. I know it's in the Brad Fell mental health category of things that are important for leaders, but I think you become a better leader when you understand yourself in these moments and what you need and how you need to be to be able to get into the gear where you can start to solve the problem rather than just thrash around or be anxious or be irrational or make decisions that are ones that are emotional decisions rather than pragmatic decisions. Someone posted in the chat that her story is the co-founder started labor when all of this was going down and she's great, the baby is great, and they better name that baby Cash because... I, I, I can't even think of another name that is more appropriate than Cash. <laughs> we definitely had our own version on Friday night at Foundry. And then through the weekend with our CEOs, I sent a couple of gallows humor notes, you know, too soon? too soon? Are you sure? Is this too soon? Like, there's a little bit of that just to like, hey, you know, we didn't, we haven't died. Like, you know, it's, uh, it's, it, we're still humans. There's a, for people that are interested, it's fantastic. Uh, just to watch, and I'll give it to texters to send around in some uh, newsletter. Louis Rockheiser, people probably have no idea who he is. Many, many years, he had a, a show called Wall Street Week, and it was on Friday night, and it was the wrap-up to you know the week, and it's 30 minutes. And he had one the Friday after the Black Monday crash of 1987, 
And his intro, his three, four minute intro is spectacular. Spectacular. We'll pin that and, and when we share this out. We're, I'll, it's I'll worth sending it. around and watching. Thank you so much. Okay, David, really quick, last reflections. Yeah, I mean, for most people, hopefully this is not a catastrophic event. It's a moment in time and, and a spectrum that we're going through that's not trending the way we all want to see it. The community on Techstars Universe on the Discord has been amazing. Uh, portfolio services at techstars.com standing by to help with whatever you need help with. But the community, I mean, I've been really proud to see people coming together, sharing information, jumping on calls to each other. Let's continue doing that. And so if you're a Techstars portfolio company, please be on Techstars Universe and happy to talk more about any of your questions there or elsewhere when I see you. Thanks a lot for listening to the show today. We'd love to hear your feedback, ideas, or who you'd like to hear next on Give First. And please leave a rating and review, ideally a good one, and reach out anytime to podcasts at techstars.com or on Twitter, I'm at David Cohen. See you next time. Don't forget, Give First.